In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor, normally in Brussels, but currently in Limerick. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments in Dublin, Brussels and London. This week, there has been increasing speculation that the UK will trigger Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol. We'll assess how things have got to this point, what Article 16 actually is and what it might achieve. We'll also look at the ongoing fish wars between London and Paris in what has been quite a bruising week for Boris Johnson's government. Is a technical fix possible or are fisheries simply an excuse to perpetuate centuries-old dysfunction when it comes to Britain and France? We'll have the expert view from a veteran observer of cross-channel fisticuffs but first Mara Shevchevich and David Frost were meeting in Brussels today on his way into the meeting. David Frost said there was quite a gap between the two sides. We uh, hope to make some progress but honestly the gap between us is still quite significant. Uh, but let's see where we, we can get to. Will you trigger Article 16 today, Lord Frost? We're not going to trigger Article 16 today, but Article 16 is very much on the table and has been since July. Is that likelihood increasing? Do you think is it getting a, becoming a closer prospect? Well, time is running out on these, these talks. If we're to, to make progress, we, we need to make progress soon. And our preference is to make progress and see if we can reach an agreement. What would it take to not trigger Article 16? We knew, if we can reach an agreement, a consensual agreement on the protocol that provides a sustainable solution, then that's the best way forward. That much, is the way of avoiding How long can long long these talks stretch on for before you make a decision on this? So I, I'm not going to give any sort of timescales or any hypotheticals. We are trying to reach agreement and we're working very hard and we're going to carry on trying. Is there anything that could happen in today's talks that would change the, the course of progress? So a, there's a significant gap between us. If that gap narrows and the Commission listen to what we have said in the command paper and look at the situation in Northern Ireland, then maybe that will help us move things forward. Thanks very much, everybody. Thank Thanks. you. Well, that was before the meeting. No sign of Article 16 being triggered today, at least. But Mara Shevchevich, after the meeting, had this to say, striking a decidedly downbeat note. Our package as a whole will provide significant changes for operators on the ground. In practice, our proposals would create a type of express lane. Customs-related uh, red tape would be cut in half. A significant range of retail goods uh, would also benefit from simplified certification. And uh, this would result in reduction of up to 80% of SPS checks. It is a whole new model for how goods uh, can be moved uh, from Great Britain uh, to Northern Ireland. It would result uh, in strength and opportunities uh, for the people of Northern Ireland. And this was a big move uh, by us. But until today, we have seen no move at all from the UK side. 
I found this disappointing, and once again, I urge the UK government to engage with us sincerely. From this perspective, I see next week as an important one. We should focus all efforts on reaching a solution as soon as possible. Our aim should be to establish stability and predictability for Northern Ireland. We hear a lot about Article 16 at the moment. Let there be no doubt that triggering Article 16 to seek the renegotiation of the protocol would have serious consequences. Serious for Northern Ireland as it would lead to instability and unpredictability. And serious also for the EU-UK relations in general as it, as it would mean a rejection of EU efforts to find a consensual solution to the implementation of the protocol. Discussions will continue at expert level and I'm committed to traveling to London on the 12th of November. We also exchange views on the pending issue of uh, French fisheries licenses. The trade and cooperation agreement is clear. Vessels that were fishing in the territorial waters of the UK and Crown dependencies should be allowed to continue. All French vessels entitled to a license should receive one. I support Commissioner Sinkevichus in his ongoing efforts to find a solution. Thank you very much for your attention and have a good afternoon. To you first on this, Tony, you were tweeting this morning, being Friday as we record this, that there is increasing expectation, if not concern, that the UK is on the verge at some point, probably after COP, to trigger Article 16. What's given rise to people thinking that they're going to do it at this juncture, seeing as they've said the circumstances are there to do it since their command paper in July. Yeah, I mean, in, in fact, it's uh, it, we, we can go back to June when David Frost first raised the possibility of triggering Article 16. And even, even before that, you know, there were hints that the UK would, you know, not rule out any option uh, when it came to the protocol. But I suppose in recent weeks, the messaging from the UK has been a lot more... I suppose, combative on the Article 16 issue and also the reasons behind it. Uh, we even Just this week, we had David Frost writing the foreword to a very long paper by the Policy Exchange Think Tank, which is a kind of a pro-Brexit think tank in London, again, setting out uh, this narrative that there was a kind of original sin in the Brexit negotiations, which gave rise to the, the protocol that we now have. And, and he's essentially saying that this was based on a, a an unbalanced interpretation of the Good Friday Agreement, that the UK was weak in its negotiating position. It was kind of forced into this notion of Northern Ireland aligning with the single market and customs union, while there were perfectly good solutions that could have avoided a hard border, such as alternative arrangements. And essentially because the UK negotiators at the time were kind of still had this lingering attitude to the European Union following 45 years of membership that they weren't able to strike a sufficiently robust negotiating posture. And for all these reasons, the, the joint report was essentially, this is the joint report back in December 2017 that gave rise to the backstop, which in turn gave rise to the current protocol, um, that this, this was really a huge injustice or 
uh, mistake uh, that that essentially had to be rectified because it left the Good Friday Agreement unbalanced because unionists have not bought into the protocol. So again, we've had these messages from David Frost almost on a weekly basis, whether it's something he writes or something that he says in the House of Commons or in some other platform. And I think this, the, the the threat of triggering Article 16 has been made so many times that the European Union is saying, well, we're now going to take this seriously and we are going to prepare uh, as a result. Sean, there are equally compelling reasons, one might say, not to trigger it as to trigger it. I mean, the British government has enough on its plate for any government uh, at the moment, which is, by at least some assessments, a reason not to trigger it. But, of course, if it needs something else, another talking point, perhaps to go back to the winning formula of people talking about Brexit that has worked for this government, perhaps that's a reason for triggering it. Well, Boris Johnson's famous throw-a-dead-cat-on-the-table argument, yes. I mean, look, getting back to why they would... um, trigger it and when they would trigger it and why now why in november well we we reported weeks ago i mean a month ago um, lord frost himself saying at the conservative party in manchester he thought november looked like the kind of crisis point in this range of talks and sure enough here we are just squeaked into november and uh, it looks like we're heading for a crisis point. I thought those remarks from Shevchevic were pretty uh, bleak, uh, but very consistent with the way we thought things were going to pan out. Uh, And as for uh, the precise timing um, of after the COP, we've been saying it again for weeks on this podcast that that looks like the most likely time, because why would you do it this week when you've had a whole bunch of world leaders in the UK you don't really want to be distracting from uh, a conference that they've been building up for a long, long time to. And it, uh, on a topic which, uh, you know, in fairness to him, Boris Johnson is personally committed to, uh, which is uh, protecting the environment. Um, why would you do it that this week or indeed next week when that conference is continuing and building towards what he hopes will be a very important contribution to solving the climate crisis but also to burnishing his own image as a prime minister why would you do it next week why not wait till the week after which again ties in with the expectations most of us have had i think what you're alluding to in terms of the domestic uh, crisis is the big big problem uh, that they've had this week over the owen patterson affair uh, in which the conservative uh, government has really really done itself damage um, but we've also seen a very big backbench revolt Uh, without any consequences from the whips, because the chief whip uh, is part of the uh, mess that has been created this week. So some people are thinking, well, if there's a problem with the Conservative Party over allegations of sleaze, which is the word that all the newspapers are using this week, once again, not a good look for the Conservative Party, reach for your dead cat, throw something on the table to get people distracted. Uh, Why not trigger Article 16? It's popular with the Conservative base, uh, particularly the Brexit base uh, in the party. But is it really a good idea to do it? Um, It it, it is a big step, uh, particularly if it triggers uh, a really big response from the European Union. Um, It doesn't look like there'd be an immediate response, uh, and certainly the the fire breaks that are built into these treaties um, would tend to suggest that things will be slowed down but you will inevitably get people saying look this is going to destroy an already fragile great british christmas we know about all the supply chain problems etc that are going on in this country right now heading into a trade war with your biggest trading partner probably not the brightest idea at this time of year 
some people now starting to say, hey, what about the impact it might have on sterling, etc., etc. There's pros and cons for doing these things uh, on either side. Rational argument might say probably not a great thing to do, but then when has reason ever triumphed in this whole Brexit process, there are gut instincts uh, at play here, animal spirits, uh, deep emotional uh, notions, uh, things that aren't really uh, you know, amenable to reason. Uh, principles uh, are at stake uh, and people will make decisions uh, that don't necessarily comply with the laws of logic uh, and reason and they will do things for political reasons. Right, okay, well seeing as post-COP coal will be phased out anyway so poor Bob Cratchit doesn't even have the extra lump to look forward to. Tony I suppose this is all in the realms of speculation what may or may not happen. Let's get into the issue I suppose. What is Article 16? What's it designed to do and how can it be used? Article 16 is really a, a classic safeguard clause that you get in, in quite a number of treaties. I think the treaty establishing, establishing the European Economic Area which basically combines EFTA with the EU. It has an Article 16 type safeguard clause in there, which is very similar. And it is essentially allows one side of the agreement, one party to the agreement, to take safeguard measures if there is a sudden and damaging uh, trade phenomenon which damages one particular sector in their economy. And uh, I think the there was a case taken uh, a safeguard measure taken against Norwegian salmon which was uh, apparently flooding the market at, at one stage quite a long time ago and I think that may even have been Britain and Ireland who uh, raised some concerns there um, it, it's you know the, the way it's written shows that it that there are um, you have to have serious grounds for triggering article 16 and you can only trigger elements of the protocol uh, or you can you can only suspend elements of the protocol through uh, Article 16, and those are the elements covering goods, uh, Articles 5 to 10 of the protocol. So it's not a carte blanche to just sweep away the protocol. It's, it's not a definitive elimination of the protocol by any means, and there has to be economic, uh, societal, or environmental difficulties uh, which are both serious and liable to persist um, the, the article doesn't specify or spell out what a serious difficulty is, nor does it say what a diversion of trade is. So obviously Lord Frost has been saying the fact that north-south trade has boomed in some sectors is uh, proof that there has been a diversion of trade away from GB to NI, uh, and that's therefore a justification. Of course, we should say that the UK says that the, the grounds for triggering Article 16 are already there, that those that threshold has already been met. The European Union obviously says absolutely not, the grounds aren't there. Um, but the, the point about Article 16 is that it, it, has to, it, has, it has to be limited in how it's used, and the way it's used has to minimise any disruption to the, the normal functioning of the protocol. So it does come with a lot of caveats that uh, perhaps people who support triggering Article 16 are not fully aware of. Right. And is it necessarily unilateral? There is no sort of independent third party arbitration on whether or not the bar has been reached for triggering Article 16. One side says the bar has been reached to trigger Article 16 and then triggers it. Is that the way it's supposed to work? 
Well, you, you can trigger it unilaterally, but you, you do then have to enter consultations uh, for a month. Um, and of course, if um, if one party triggers Article 16, then the other party is entitled to adopt uh, rebalancing measures because obviously the protocol is, is a jointly agreed set of arrangements um, that, that provides a, a balance of rights and obligations. Um, so, you know, I, I think you will see action being taken fairly quickly. But I mean, just talking to officials this morning in Brussels, you know, there has been a conversation and a lot of work done by the European Commission on how they should respond to Article 16. But they've been kept fairly sort of below the radar because the, the, the I suppose in the hope that this wouldn't inflame an already difficult situation. But I think there's a feeling that the UK might miscalculate that when they trigger Article 16 or if and when they trigger Article 16, that the EU would just reach for the kind of legal option. So you'd have a month of consultations, or then you'd have letters exchanged, then you'd have infringement proceedings. Um, there's certainly a growing uh, belief that the EU should hit back hard and much more radically and much more quickly than perhaps the UK uh, is bargaining for. And, you know, people are now talking about either suspending the trade and cooperation agreement or terminating it altogether. So these are obviously fairly radical ideas that are being kicked around. Now, I should stress, and it's important to stress, that these are still in the realms of discussions and preparations at, at commission level. But this is, this is now starting to crystallise in terms of contacts between the commission and member states because they feel that, you know, the UK simply is acting in bad faith and it is it has been doing this for quite a long time and that there has to be a decisive response from the EU if article 16 is triggered what's the expectation do you think Sean on on the UK end is this supposed to wind up in endless discussions while in effect elements of the northern ireland protocol remain suspended or is there an expectation that this could escalate there's multiple theories uh, on, on this column as to uh, where it goes or what the big picture thinking of it is. Some people are saying the Johnson regime needs a permanent enemy and needs to be in an antagonistic relationship with the European Union uh, in order to keep its electoral uh, coalition together for the next election, which is in about two years' time. So people are wondering on that basis, would the EU's best tactic to be uh, to announce that in one year's time it will uh, suspend the trade and cooperation agreement, that is to say, bring in tariffs and quotas on British uh, goods export <coughs> excuse me, exported to the EU, uh, which sets a hard deadline and you're back into another year of the clock is ticking and the deadline is approaching, etc, etc. We've been there, we've done that twice as it happens. Are we in for a third dose of it? Hopefully we're not, but you never know. Uh, what do the British want to get out of it? Do they want to have a negotiation with the European Union or would they like to try and put this uh, to bed permanently? It depends on who you believe. I mean, Lord Frost has said he'd like to get a new dispensation wrapped up with the European Union, uh, but that does entail, as we've discussed numerous times in the past, a really radical rewrite of the protocol. He accepts there would be one, uh, but it would be very, very different uh, to the protocol that exists today. Whether that is good for British politics and economy, who knows? Uh, probably not the best for Northern Ireland because as the uncertainty continues, 
the uh, uncertainty persists about whether Northern Ireland is a good place to invest in, and that's something that uh, a concern has been expressed by the Ulster Unionist Party, for example. So you know, there's lots of potential ways that this might play, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing for politics in Britain, and by which uh, we usually mean when you're talking about politics in Britain, uh, a lot of this is motivated by about what is good for the Conservative Party, uh, whether they win uh, or lose support, um, whether Brexit is still the big issue that will pull a coalition of voters together to back Boris Johnson at the next election. OK, Sean, last week we were looking at Queen's University Belfast survey uh, commissioned but from Lucid Talk, but you've been looking at other research on the Northern Ireland Protocol this week, this time from Liverpool University. That's right. The uh, University of Liverpool uh, has commissioned social market research to do uh, survey data with a thousand uh, voters in Northern Ireland. Again, similar-ish um, conclusions, uh, or rather conclusions that would be in support uh, of the survey that we talked about last week from Queen's, which is uh, that there isn't, as this report puts it, no evidence of a crisis in Northern Ireland over the protocol. Uh, indeed, uh, Professor Pete Sherlow, uh, who uh, heads the um, Irish Studies Institute at Liverpool, uh, writing in this report that the data evidences consensus or near consensus, not a crisis in Northern Ireland. Uh, it says that uh, people uh, in Northern Ireland are broadly supportive of the kind of uh, ideas that are being put forward by the European Commission and indeed by the British government to uh, improve the flow of goods and uh, services into Northern Ireland, uh, cut back on the paperwork, do all the practical things rather than looking at issues like the uh, the Court of Justice, which again doesn't seem to uh, figure as uh, an issue for people in Northern Ireland. Uh, also cross-community consensus is being pointed to uh, by Professor uh, Sherlow uh, in this report uh, that uh, there is a cross-unionist, cross-nationalist consensus available. It's there to be had in support of pragmatic measures that make life easier for people in Northern Ireland. So the conclusions that he uh, is drawing is that there is a willingness to compromise and build consensus uh, within Northern Ireland society, that people there are looking for proportionality in north-south, east-west trade relationships, but they're not looking to blow up the uh, arrangements between the uh, EU and the United Kingdom uh, and that even within the, uh, the unionist political parties and even within the DUP uh, there doesn't seem to be a, a big appetite for having a, a major conflict with the European Union over issues that can be resolved on a technical basis. Right, or have buses burnt, as we saw in Belfast in the case of one bus during the week, which was roundly condemned by all parties. But that's not the only data you've been going through, Sean. Something just coming in this afternoon as we went in to record. What have you got? Yeah, National Audit Office, uh, a report by the Comptroller and Auditor General. Remember him? Uh, the guy who looks at the money and value from money in government spending. Um, this is the fifth in a series of reports, annual reports as they're becoming now, on the operation of the uh, UK border, this one in the post-transition period phase. The uh, praise comes fairly soon uh, in this report, saying a significant achievement uh, across government that all these departments have collaborated together in delivering a new border arrangement. However, it's been delivered, the capability has been achieved in part by using temporary measures like delaying importing, uh, imposing import controls or putting in place easements and providing direct financial support to businesses to help them to continue to trade. Uh, and the big 
killer line, I guess, in this report is that the government has set its own timetable for phasing in import controls and has revised this three times, prioritising flow over compliance. This cannot go on indefinitely. The current overall operating model for the EU GB border is not sustainable, says the controller and auditor general, and much more work is needed to put in place a stable operating model that eliminates any risk of a WTO challenge. There, we're back to our old friends' WTO rules, one of those rules being that you have to have the same kind of border arrangements for all the countries that you're uh, doing trade with. You can't give the EU a more favourable treatment than you give to other countries that you're doing trade with. Otherwise, those countries have a right to take an action against you at the WTO in Geneva. And of course, the current situation here in Britain is they're not doing the kind of checks and controls on goods flowing from the EU because they want to keep that flow going. There has been problems, as we know, with the haulage industry, uh, with the uh, exporters uh, and the amount of paperwork that is required. And that's why the British government is spending all of this extra money trying to ease the situation but as the controller says, that's not sustainable. Something has got to be done. They've got to prioritise streamlining the border processes. They've got to monitor and understand better the impact that these kind of new border arrangements are going to have on trade flows in order to improve and tweak the operation of them. And they've got to uh, address the current risks, particularly those relating to uh, infrastructure and trailer and haulier readiness, the readiness of companies to do the kind of paperwork uh, that is required. It also points out the risk inherent in the instability of the Northern Ireland Protocol, the fact that it's being uh, renegotiated as we speak. It means that there is an unwillingness, understandable unwillingness, uh, of companies to commit resource into a situation that is fluid uh, at the moment. Uh, and um, you know, why invest money, why spend all this money preparing for a Northern Ireland Protocol that right. might be quite different in a couple of weeks' time. So a lot of uncertainty there uh, pointed to as a cost both to the government and to business and partly a, a reason for the fall in trade uh, which the uh, NAO also points to. Right, so a consensus across all the research we've covered over the last two weeks sorted out. That's Article 16 done for this week, but I suppose to pick up another contentious bone, Tony, you've been having a look in depth with a veteran a viewer of Anglo-French relations, indeed, uh, an Englishman living in France. Yeah, bone meaning Clement Bone, I guess, uh, <laughs> in, in your wordplay there. Um, yeah, of course, the, the fisheries question is still a sort of running sore in relations between France and Britain. I mean, we talked about this last week, essentially the UK saying, look, we've given licenses to 1,700 boats from the European Union to fish in British waters, but of course... It's the boats that want to fish in the waters around Jersey that are not getting the licenses they feel they deserve. These are the, the small boats and they're saying that the UK is looking for data which they can't provide because under the common fisheries policy uh, and well actually under the, the Bay of Granville Treaty um, that, uh, that governed those waters they, they didn't uh, have to have the kinds of equipment on board that would provide the data that the UK wants. Um, so so, th so this has been, uh, you know, an ongoing scrap uh, and it's kind of bleeding over into the protocol. Lord Frost has linked the two issues and indeed he spoke to Clement Bone, the, Europe, the French Europe minister in Paris on, uh, on Thursday. 
uh, and he raised the Northern Ireland Protocol issue there and the French side basically told Lord Frost that that was a bilateral issue between the UK and the European Commission but that France supported the Commission view on it. Um, so we, you know, we've got this deepening, almost personalised dispute between France and the UK on this. It's prompted a lot of very colourful headlines uh, in the UK. Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, the Brexiteer, saying that uh, France was always irritated, uh, irritable at this time of the year because of Trafalgar and Agincourt. So that gives you an, an indication of <laughs> the kind of uh, buttons that are being pressed by both sides. But I've been talking to John Litchfield, who is a veteran UK correspondent uh, for The Guardian and The London Independent and Politico. Uh, he's been covering uh, French politics for about 25 years. And so he knows the the relationship, he knows the history between both sides. And also he lives in Normandy, so he can look out his window and, at, at uh, the Bay of Granville and uh, the boats that uh, sail off to those rich waters around Jersey. So he's been talking to me about the relationship between Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron and the backdrop to this fisheries crisis. And uh, here's what he's had to say. John Litchfield, thanks very much for joining us on Brexit Republic. It's been a fairly fractious few weeks between London and Paris. We've had big issues around the, the submarine deal, the, the wider Brexit friction, and now we've got the fisheries issue once again flaring up. I mean, this, this originally flared up in the springtime uh, when it came to fishing licenses for French vessels around the Channel Islands and also in the UK's six to 12 mile zone. Um, I mean, you, you've written a very thoughtful piece for Unheard uh, magazine. What what do you put this fr friction down to? Is this just a centuries-old dynamic that is flaring up again, or is it something different? Well, both, I suppose. I mean, I, I've been covering uh, sort of uh, France and therefore Frank Franco-British quarrels of one kind or another for, well, nearly a quarter of a century now. And there have been plenty in that time, you know. I mean, there was a big, big row about Chirac's refusal to go into the Iraq war in 2003. When I first came to France, there were, there were ongoing rows going on about uh, mad cow disease and the effect of that on French agriculture and also then later um, uh, foot and mouth disease. There have been many reasons for, for contention between the countries, which is kind of normal, you know. Uh, apart from Ireland, France is uh, the biggest and, and is the nearest neighbour in the EU. And it's a sort of relationship that goes back so over many centuries. I mean, I, I've often compared the two countries to sisters living next door to one another, you know, who are, who are constantly quarrelling, constantly looking over the garden fence or over the water to see what the other is doing. But fundamentally, there is a bond there which keeps bringing them back together. And that has always been the case in my experience here in the last 25 years. This time, it does seem in many ways much harsher. Um, it's partly, I think, that the, the tabloid press in Britain is in an even more hysterical mood than historically it's been, and therefore tends to be even more extreme in its representation of the French motives in things, and France generally. Uh, I think that is driven somewhat by the government's motivation in wanting to keep Brexit on the boil, not sort of saying that it's got Brexit done, but never really wanting to let go of Brexit as a live issue because it's... It's something that so they feel helps them uh, politically. 
And um, I think there's sort of some fault in the sense on the on the French side as well. I think Macron is not anti-British as the French, as the British media likes to say. I don't think instinctively he's anti-British at all. I think he perhaps had over expectations of how he could control and handle Britain and handle Boris Johnson. Macron is someone who gets very attracted to the idea of feeling that although he is not himself a populist, he knows how to handle populists, you know. He, he thought he could have a relationship with Trump. He thought the same with, with Putin. He almost also thought the, thing, the same at one point about Erdogan in Turkey. And I think he felt that he was the person in the EU and because of France's uh, close relationship with Britain was the right person to sort of bring keep Britain somehow within the European or- orbit after Brexit. Uh, which is not the way it's seen in Britain, as you know. The British tend to think that the French ha- had the harshest point of view, wanted to push Britain away. I don't think that's true at all. And he's been, I think, angered, disappointed, piqued by uh, many of the attacks that have been made on him and many of the things that the British government has done, which are seen as anti-French and are anti-French in some respects in the last few years. So there, there is a sort of, there's a personal aspect to this, I think, which is something neither man should have allowed to happen. Uh, and it, it's also obviously in the most obvious elephant in the room, it is in, in the first year of Brexit and therefore the tensions between Britain and the EU have been very uh, acute. Um, uh, and France is the first place people look, you know, when they look out from Britain, they tend to look uh, out from Britain and, and they see France as, as a large part of the rest of the world and therefore it's France that gets the flag. Now, this has been depicted in some quarters as both leaders, Macron and Johnson, using the fisheries dispute to cover up domestic problems or domestic challenges that they've had. Now, in the UK, we've had the Office of Budget Responsibility spelling out quite starkly that Brexit is going to cost the UK more than the pandemic. And people have talked about the challenges facing Emmanuel Macron next year being an election year. Although having said that, all of the opinion polls so far still give him a fairly comfortable lead. Yeah, well, I suppose I have to separate those out. If I do France first, I think it's absurd, ridiculous, you know, from anyone looking at it from a French perspective or understanding France at all, to believe that somehow Macron would think that causing a big row with Britain over fisheries would somehow help him in his uh, election campaign next year. Uh, I mean, fish is a very, very small part of the French economy, is important in, in, in regionally in, in certain areas, in, in Normandy, Brittany, in Pas-de-Calais. Uh, there's not a strong anti-British feeling in France in the way that there is easily wound up in, in Britain against the French. There's not anti-British feeling in France. I've lived here a quarter of a century. I can count maybe... On two fingers, a number of times I've been abused for being British. You know, it doesn't it doesn't actually happen that much. There isn't a, there isn't a sort of uh, a strong flow of anti-British feeling. So there's not something there that Macron would want to or could really appeal to. That is a pure invention on the part of not just the British media, because you even had the British Foreign Secretary Liz Truss this week suggesting that somehow this was being got up by the French for electoral reasons, and forgetting that the row, as you said, has been going on since May, which was a year ahead of the election and not likely something that Macron would have been had in his mind then. It's true, I suppose, that you know, if Macron was see- seen to be rolled over by the British on this and the, uh, and the French interest in this, and it is quite an important interest locally um, for the French, uh, that would be bad electorally. Therefore, there is a kind of defensive, not a proactive reason why this is could be potentially an electoral issue, but it's not the reason why it's become a big problem. It's become a big problem because the French were 
led to believe perhaps over persuaded themselves that they had a very good deal in the in the, in the fisheries um, negotiations last December and that they, their boats could continue to fish between 6 and 12 miles as well as outside that as they had been uh, for centuries you know we are talking about very very close to France in in the, in the case of the Channel Islands you know you look out from where I'm at the moment in Normandy uh, from the Cottontown Peninsula and Jersey is just it's almost like a kind of lake away it's not like a sea away it's very very close so you sail out from Granville or other French ports, and you're almost immediately in the waters of, of, of Jersey. You know, they don't feel it sort of like foreign waters that they're sailing into. It's their own waters. It's something similar for also for the, the small French boats that sail out from, from Boulogne and other ports in the north of France where, you know, they only have to go 10 miles or so offshore and they're in, in the British waters and they only have to go a few more miles than that and they're within the British 6 to 12 miles zone where they, again, have fished for centuries. And it's the smaller boats that sort of able to that have always done that, which have fallen foul of of the British imposed regulations. There was nothing in the treaty last December that said how those boats should prove that they had uh, acquired rights, that they had always fished in those waters or had fished in those waters in recent years. It said it laid down what they had to prove, but it didn't say how they could prove it, what they had to produce in the way of evidence. So the British reasonably enough have come up with rules, which are rules which have very difficult to meet for smaller boats. You mentioned something very interesting in your article that Boris Johnson had got under the skin of Emmanuel Macron. What, what's the sort of essence of that relationship and, and why is Macron and the French government so animated by Brexit Britain right this minute? I think it, it, it is the, the sense, I think Macron did have a sense that he was the man who would be able to keep Britain within the European audit, despite Brexit. I mean, I think it's not true to say that Macron uh, somehow tried to resist Brexit or tried to punish Britain from Brexit. He certainly took the view that if Britain was going to leave, and that was their sovereign right to do so, that they should not have uh, somehow the ability to maintain many of the advantages remaining within the EU without any of the uh, any of the commitments um, or, or the disadvantages, if you want to look at it that way. Um, so he was certainly very fierce on that, but it's certainly not true to think say that he wanted to punish Britain. And he said, I th- he think he feels, I think, that the British have gone out of their way to use anti-French feeling um, to push away any attempt to keep. Britain in a sort of a more European frame of mind that he has attempted at various points to have a better relationship with Britain and with Macron and has been met uh, usually with insults or mockery like the, the submarine crisis you mentioned the British didn't play a big role in that it was much more an Australian and American thing but the British did play a role and they also somewhat sort of exulted in the fact that they'd somehow uh, torpedoed, sunk um, to the bottom of the ocean that this big 56 euro, billion euro, I think, contract that the French had had for many years with the Australians. Um, and when it was pointed out that there were French interests in the Pacific and, and they had every reason to feel to feel uh, miffed by this, uh, Johnson sort of mocked them with a bit of um, franglais saying, uh, what was he, he said, donnez-moi un break, was that what he said? Get a, get a un grip. Yeah, give him an break. Uh, some some sort of wrongly phrase, anyway, which again was was sort of stoking up sort of French mockery, anti-French feeling. So I, I think the, the, 
I think Macron felt that below the, the sort of rather clownish exterior, Johnson was a man you could deal with, and he's come to the view that below the clownish exterior there is a rather malevolent man and not man you can deal with um, at all. Okay, and the, the the Northern Ireland Protocol, which we talk a lot about on the podcast, obviously has got sort of roped into this dispute because the French have been raising this issue as another example, as they would see it, of, of bad faith on the UK side, of, of not complying with a treaty that you've signed. Absolutely. The French have been one of but I don't think only the French have been very strong on that. And, and um, I, I think, I think you know, Macron, any French politician, if you ask them, would, would, would admit that the Northern Ireland issue is a far more serious example of Britain trying to slide out of or row back on what it committed itself to last December than, than the fisheries agreement. The fisheries thing is important to the French, but it's, it's as we've seen, not very important to any other EU states, and the French don't feel they've had much support on it. But uh, I think the French have been very supportive of the Brussels and, and the Dublin view about the Northern Ireland Agreement, partly, you might say, for kind of selfish or uh, defensive reasons that you know they don't want the single market to be breached um, through the Northern Ireland Ireland border or anywhere else, but also I think because so much time and and care was taken by the EU to try and uh, solve that issue. It was one of the most important and difficult issues, as you know only too well, in in the, in the negotiations before last December, and then for the British within. A few months to say no, we're not. We, we don't feel we can. We can uh, live with this agreement that we signed. I think um, it, it, there is a huge matter of principle in that alone. Quite apart from the, the the very difficult issues that it creates for Ireland, for Northern Ireland, and for the single market. So yes, that is something that the French have been very very strong on, and those would be the two most obvious areas where Britain has tried to to row back on on what it agreed last December. And Northern Ireland being far bigger than the fish issue in itself, which is it's kind of trivial if you want, if you want to see it that way, but I think there is a fear in France and not just in France that if you want to let Britain get away with too much on those two things, that it would not be the end; that the whole thing would unravel very quickly. Yeah. F- finally, John, do you think that the election campaign next year will start to suck in some of the Brexit sovereignty ECJ type issues that uh, we're currently seeing? Yes, I think that is a very important and interesting question, actually, because the. The decision by the Polish uh, Constitutional Tribunal a few weeks ago now to, to uh, reject the decisions made by the European Court of Justice and attempts by Brussels to impose the rule of law in, in, in Poland have been already become an issue in the sort of pre-election campaign. Several of the of the people who are already campaigning on the hard right, like or far right, like Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour, the sort of xenophobic Communist who's doing very well in the polls at the moment have come out really strongly in favour of the, the Polish point of view. They're suggesting that the European Commission is is trying trying to sort of browbeat a, a sovereign nation and this shouldn't be allowed. And that the French themselves should reassert that the uh, the primacy of national law over European law. Uh, a very confused, very ignorant debate uh, in France about that, I have to say. Also, people on the hard left saying saying something rather similar. So yes, the the whole the Brexit 
um, issue is potentially something that could come back to be used against Macron in the uh, in the campaign, or it could have been had Brexit been more of a success, quite frankly, Tony. And I think one of, one of an issue in the campaign might well be just how damaging Brexit has proved to be for Britain. Had it not been the other way, had it been the other way around, I think you would have found it um, been used far more by the the sovereigntists in. Um, in French uh, politics. It is so interesting if you look at it, if you look at the polls, if you add up all the people who take a pretty Eurosceptic, hard Eurosceptic sovereigntist point of view, they represent something just under 50% in the polls in France at the moment. Okay, that's very interesting. Well, look, thanks very much, John, for talking to Brexit Republic. Uh, it's been a pleasure and uh, chat to you soon. Thank you. So, Tony, that was you talking to John Litchfield. Sean, what's coming up for you in the coming week? Do you think we'll see any resolution to the fish wars? Is there anything on the agenda on that in that line? Well, we've got fish wars ongoing uh, meetings in the early part of the week. We've got Brexit talks, um, particularly uh, heading towards the end of the week. Uh, this day, week Friday, Mara Shevchevic is going to be here in London, presumably having a, a lunchtime meeting with David Frost to review this week's or next week's progress or lack of progress and uh, presumably try and push to see if there's any kind of uh, uh, resolution or ideas or statements from the uh, British side. We've also got uh, another outing of the Patterson um, debacle uh, in the Commons on Monday when there's uh, emergency motions coming in. At least we think they're coming in. They're down on the Commons order paper to try and set aside the vote that they had last week, trying to set aside the verdict of the uh, Independent Standards Commissioner uh, in the case of uh, Owen Patterson, the uh, MP and former Northern Ireland Secretary who resigned during this week. All right, Tony, what about you? What's coming up in the coming week? Yeah, all eyes, uh, Colin, will be back on the, uh, the those technical talks that are, are going to return uh, next week. Um, can they get uh, any way of bridging that gap, which both sides admit uh, is there? Um, and from what, from what I gather, the, the uh, during these technical talks, the UK has really been pushing to get the ECJ issue onto the agenda, and the, the European Commission have staunchly resisted that. Uh, so that's an indication that things are, are not really going very well. Otherwise, there's going to be uh, Eurogroup ministers and Ecofin ministers meeting in Brussels next week. There's going to be a Strasbourg plenary session of the European Parliament. A lot of talk about inflation and, of course, energy crisis again. But uh, a lot of people will be keeping an eye on Article 16. Will it rear its ugly head next week? We'll have to wait and see. Right, probably not. Cops not wrapped up till Friday. So probably not before then, if you're both right. That's it from me, Colm O'Mungay and RT. Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan, RT's Correspondent in London. And from me, Tony Connolly, RT's Europe Editor in Limerick. Thanks for listening.